0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We've been walking through the book of John in a series called Come and See. It's this invitation to come and see really the, the central question of this passage, the central question of that song we sang, Is He Worthy? Can this be the Christ? Who is Jesus. Great questions for us to ask. Sometimes kids can ask some pretty tough questions. This week, our staff and wives, Sunday we left as, as Gary had departed to go and take his treatment. He was not able to be part of a trip. We had scheduled, we do every two years where staff and wives go to a different city and we either go to a conference or meet with churches and ministries and learn about a particular aspect of ministry. And so we were doing that, and Thursday I was excited to come home and see my kids, and I saw one of the teachers had posted a picture online of my first grader's class, and they were meeting with a weatherman. And I see this big smile, and so I get home and I ask Jeb, I said, Jeb, did you meet with a weatherman? And he holds up this little pamphlet he has, and he said, we did. His name was Rusty Carrot. And I, I said, are you sure it wasn't Rusty Garrett? And he said, no, it was Rusty Carrot. I said, okay, how was it? And he said, well, he was really loud when he talked about storms. I think he was angry. I thought, Rusty Garrett's probably the least angry person on the planet. Well, what did you learn? He said, we learned about hail and tornadoes and thunderstorms. I said, wow, that can be some frightening stuff. He said, it is, but I don't understand how those things happen, Dad, because you said God was in control of everything. It's a hard question. So I said, you know, he is, Jeb, and, and even when those storms come, that doesn't mean God's not in control. We get nervous because they're loud and they're frightening, but Jesus' disciples got nervous when there were storms, and he walked on top of those waves, and he said, be still, and the storm stopped. So even when there are storms, God is in control. And he was good with that, and we watched Mr. Garrett a little bit to make sure he wasn't angry on TV, and indeed, he was not. See, hard questions can lead to hard answers. Sometimes, though, they lead to really beautiful and deep and soul-satisfying answers. And so, we're going to look at this chapter where there is literally a question every three verses. Now, we are not going to look at every question because we would like to end sometime today. We're going to look at four questions. Where is he? Where is he? How does he know so much? Who wants to kill him? And then, is Jesus the Christ? So before we look in our text, we want to remember where we have been thus far. In John 1.14, there's a bookend of this book where John has told us that Jesus was the Word in the beginning and He was with God and He was God. And he tells us that we beheld His glory as of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John wants us to behold His glory. He wants his readers, as they're reading after the resurrection of Jesus, to behold the glory of Jesus on these pages. And then at the end of the book, 2031, he says explicitly, these things are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that believing, you may have life in His name. Abundant, full, eternal, transformed life life. And so we've seen Jesus do this work of telling disciples to come and see and to follow him. And we've seen him turn water into wine. And we've seen him turn over tables in the temple. And we've seen him tell Nicodemus, you must be born again. And we've seen him tell a Samaritan woman everything about herself. And then we've seen him tell the Pharisees, those who should have known the law. in John 5, after he heals a man on the Sabbath, we've seen him tell them that Moses, who you believe, testifies about me. And then in John 6, he tells the people, your fathers ate the bread in the wilderness and they died. But I'm the bread of life. And so thus far, John, in, the cha- in these chapters, have been, he's been pointing to Christ, to his teaching, to his power. And John chapter 7, according to one author, is a, a pretty clear turning point. See, in the first four chapters, there's really little opposition to Jesus. In chapter 5, the rulers want to kill him because he has healed a man on the Sabbath and claimed to be God. So opposition begins to come. In chapter 6, many of his disciples leave, as Pastor Tim taught us last week. And in chapter 7... Then these questions come, and John kind of gives the floor, so to speak, to Jesus' accusers, to his questioners, where the opposition to him becomes more intense, more broad-based. And along with those questions come answers that could only come from God. So we're going to enter this text again as it's time for the Feast of Tabernacles. This historian, Josephus, said the Feast of Tabernacles was the holiest and greatest of all the feasts, it was one of three that every Jewish man tried to go to every year. The first was Passover in the spring. The second, seven weeks later, would be Pentecost. And then at the end of the grape and olive harvest, there would be the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, where thousands upon thousands of people would converge on Jerusalem. Many Jews still celebrate this feast today. The feast was first spoken of in Leviticus when the law had been given. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know. Why is this feast happening? That I made the people of Israel dwell in booths or in tabernacles in tents when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. They dwelt in tents. They had a wilderness wandering and you need to remember this. So that was why they were going to do this, because they had to dwell in tents or booths or tabernacles. It's important to know this rhetoric that John is teaching us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That phrase, dwelt among us, literally is tabernacled or pitched his tent, made his booth. He dwelt among us in this temporary moment and we have seen his glory. And so now they are at the Feast of Tabernacles and we're going to read John 7, 1 through 13 and then we'll jump down to verses 25 and 26. After Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. He will say this again in this chapter. He said it a couple of times before. First in John 2 when Mary says they've run out of wine. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. There is a time coming when he will show himself as Messiah and Savior. And it won't be anything like what people are expecting. But his time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast. Some translations insert a yet there, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering or murmuring or grumbling about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Later on in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And Father, there's the central question of this text. It's the central question that every man, every woman, every boy, every girl must answer. Is Jesus the Christ? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus, and what is He worthy of? Is He a crazy man who thought He was the Christ? Is He a a liar who deceived many in saying He was the Christ? Or is He, in fact, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, and the Lord of all creation? God, open our eyes to see truth in this text as we look at these four questions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, question number one, where is he? His brothers did not understand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you are doing. See, his brothers have seen some, they've heard of others' works that he is doing, and many of Jesus' disciples have just left because of this hard saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciples. You can't have no part of me. He, of course, referring to his coming death and resurrection where he would give his life, his body, and his blood for the salvation of the world. So many disciples left. Go to Judea so your disciples may see the works you're doing. You need this following. Aren't you going to be king? The people wanted him to come as king and to banish Rome. They wanted an end to their oppression. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. Now, people are growing in their belief, but they're also having questions. Many are trusting. We don't know how fully they know, but here's what's amazing. His life alone that they have seen, there has been 30 years of active obedience to the Father. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. His brothers have seen him live among them all of his life in complete purity, and worship to the Father. And that alone, apart from the fact that he's done these miracles, he's healed the sick, turned water into wine, known people's thoughts, and yet not even his brothers believed. They did not understand. His time had not yet come. So his brothers go up to the feast. He says to them, you go without me. The world cannot hate you, because it, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And so then he goes up in secret. He goes up privately. And that's when people are asking the question, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? They don't understand why he's not there. They don't understand why he's not there. We ask that question often when we think Jesus ought to be there. Almost like a child who doesn't understand how God can be in control if there's a storm. Or how God can be in control if things aren't going the way we would like them to go. Where is he? And my translation says muttering. It's also translated murmuring. It's also translated grumbling. And there's something that John does not want his readers in the first century or you and me to miss. Where is this happening? It's happening at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Why does the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths happen? It happens so that God's people will be reminded of their wilderness wandering, that they had to dwell in tents when they left Egypt. And what happened in that wilderness wandering? The people grumbled and they got manna from heaven and they grumbled and there was no meat and they grumbled and then the water was bitter and here is the one who has tabernacled among them. They doubted Moses in that first wilderness wondering, and they wondered what in the world God might be doing, and here is Jesus, a second and better Moses. Moses had said, a prophet will arise. The the prophet had said, like Moses, and here he is, the second and better Moses, who doesn't just give manna from heaven, but who is manna from heaven, and the people are murmuring, wondering, complaining, doubting. Where is he? Where is he? And one of the things that we've got to understand if we are going to surrender to Jesus is this. Is that Jesus' agenda is not shaped by our agenda. It's shaped by the Father's will. He is not compelled as Lord of all creation to act the way we think He must. See, it's easy to forget who is the sovereign one. Who's actually Lord in this relationship. But Jesus, despite what we sometimes think, despite what these people think, without mistake, is always right where he's supposed to be, doing what he's supposed to be doing as well as he can, which is to say, perfectly. And still, like the people, we wonder, where is he? Where is he? See, he, he's come from the Father, and he's got... Teaching from the Father, and the people wonder about this teaching. They ask, Where is he? They ask, Where is he? But the second question is, How does he know so much? Look at verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? How does he have learning when he has never studied? They don't understand. See, a person in ancient Israel got their authority not from themselves, but from the one from whom they learned. Maybe they would appeal to the authority from the law. Maybe it was a rabbinical school that they had been to, like Paul the Pharisee Saul before he became Paul, had studied under the great rabbi Gamaliel. And Jesus has an answer for them. He tells them where he gets his authority. Verse 16, so he answered, my teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. Well, who sent him? The Father. If anyone's will, verse 17, is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. It's not, are you smart enough? Are you learned enough? It's, is your will to do God's will? And I think this is a central verse in this text because that's where relationship with Jesus begins. It begins at this point of surrender. It begins at this point of surrender. Is it your will? Will you surrender your will to do God's will? And if you do, you'll know whether his teaching is from God. Verse 18, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. See, his brothers want him to come up and manifest his glory, but his time is not yet come. His teaching is not for his own glory, but for the Father's. See, he's saying, my teaching comes from God, just like I came from God. Later, they'll wonder where he's going, and the answer is back to God, the Father who sent him. Verse 19, his teaching is in accordance with the law. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Why do you seek to kill me? See, the Jewish leaders have sought to kill him because he healed a man on the Sabbath. We'll dive into that a little bit later. They want to kill him for healing. There's something about the law of Moses. I cannot remember what it is, but it says something along the lines of, thou shalt not kill. See, they're mad at him about the law, but they're willing to break it to take his life. There's this great inconsistency in them, and yet Jesus is being perfectly healed consistent, if anyone's will is to do God's will. See, there are two kinds of doubters in the world. There's the sort of doubter that says, I don't understand everything about how life is going. I don't understand why circumstances are broken, but I see Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh. I see His life, I see His teaching, I see His death, I see His resurrection, and in the middle of all that, I'm willing to say, yes, this is God, and I will surrender my will to His will. Whatever His will is, I want to do it. See, that's one kind of doubter. And faith can coexist there and overwhelm that doubt by the grace of God. There's another kind of doubter, because I see the works that He's doing. I see Him healing the sick. I see His life. I see His sinlessness. I see that he died and that he rose from the dead, but he's not meeting my expectations. He's not meeting my expectations. No, I'm not going to do what he tells me. You see, that's the sort of doubt that I tend to wrestle with. It's it's not as much an issue of faith as it is a lordship. See, he says he says in verse 19, he, it's almost like he doesn't understand, though he does, "Has Moses not given you the law yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me?" And the crowd answered, "You have a demon who is seeking to kill you?" And Jesus references back to John, chapter five. We'll go there in a moment. He says, "I did one deed, and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. See, they were to do no work on the Sabbath, but if a child was born, and then the eighth day after his birth was on the Sabbath, they would say, yes, go ahead and circumcise this child. You can do that work on the Sabbath, because circumcision, this outward appearance, really, really mattered. It was one of identity. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearance, but judge with the right judgment. So he's telling them you're judging wrong. Well, were they actually seeking to kill him? What is he talking about? In John 5, he heals this man on the Sabbath and people are upset with him for healing on the Sabbath. And the man went away, it says in verse 16, and told the Jews it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things, healing a man on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered, My Father is working until now, and I am working. See, there are people who claim that Jesus never said he was the son of God. He never claimed equality with God. But listen to verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. So he alludes back to this. He alludes back to this. Who wants to kill him? Who wants to kill him? Why do you seek to kill me? Why do you seek to kill me? So verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore say, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? They don't understand it either. How could they kill him if they really knew Jesus was the Christ? And the answer is this, that on the throne of every man, every woman... On the throne of our heart, there's only room for one person to sit. There's only room for one person to sit. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees made odd bedfellows, but they wanted to sit on the throne of their life. And so there was no room for Jesus to be Lord. Augustine of Hippo said, if you believe only the parts of the gospel you agree with, then it's not God you believe in, but yourself. See, they wanted Messiah to come, but they wanted him to banish Rome. They wanted their rule to take over, and Jesus was not about their agenda. He was about the will of the Father, and so they sought to kill him. Oz Guinness says, either we can form our desires to the truth, or we can form the truth to our desires. See, if any man's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether my teaching comes from God let me just ask you a question. If there's a God, one who made the world and everything in it, would you want to know His will? And would you want to do it? This willingness to surrender our own will to God's will. Is the criteria, it's not how smart you are. It's not how good you've been. It's not the degrees that you have. It's not the job you have. It's not even about your character. Is it your will to do God's will? And this leads to the central question of the day. Is Jesus the Christ? Is Jesus Christ? the christ john 7:26 and here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him can it be that the authorities know that this is the christ people said but we know where this man comes from when christ appears no one will know where he comes from except that when the baby was born Herod asked the priest to look to look back in the scrolls and see where the Messiah would come from. Throughout the prophets, there's this hint of Bethlehem of Judea. He'll come out of Egypt. He'll be from Nazareth. So Jesus proclaimed as He taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from? But I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know, for I come from him and he has sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because the hour had not yet come. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? See, the question's turning not from can this be the Christ to can this not be the Christ? See, either... We try to conform our desires to the truth, or we conform the truth to our desires. And so Jesus says, I'm with you a little longer. And then I'm going to Him who sent me. You seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. I'm with you a little longer. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's September, October, in the spring, at Passover, It's just a little longer, six months, seven months down the road, he will be killed and he'll be buried and he'll raise from the dead. But where I'm going, you cannot come. Why can they not come? See, some of them are seeking a Messiah who will bring about a political kingdom and he's bringing about a spiritual one. Some want Jesus to keep the law as they read it and banish Rome but his rule is a threat to their rule. He'll say later, plainly, to Pilate, the Roman governor, my kingdom is not of this world. Is he the Christ? See, so you can wonder and say, you know, I don't know, but knowing what I do know about him, I can trust. Or you can say, I'll, I'll give him Everything. I'll give him everything but my sexual ethic. I'm going to hang on to that. Because I want to rule over that. I'll give him everything but my politics, whether on the left or the right. I'll give him everything but my view of life. I'll give him everything but my view of money. I'll give him everything but my view of the poor. Can this be the Christ? Is this a God I can believe in? See, some things are true, whether we believe in them or not. And sometimes we treat Jesus like, well, I'll believe in you if. And here's the reality. Jesus is either the Son of God or he is not. We're flying to Atlanta. Tim Cartwright, our junior high global outre- or local outreach pastor, has on this awful t-shirt that says Philadelphia Eagles, Super Bowl champions. And one of our flight attendants rightly Walks by and says, I do not like your shirt. Tim said, it doesn't matter if you like it or not, it happened. So there's this reality. Either Jesus is who he claimed to be or he's not. Paul said it like this. If there's no resurrection, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. We're to be pitied above all men, but indeed Jesus did raise from the dead. And that's what John is ultimately going to tell us. That these things, even these questions that he answers are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And believing you may have life in his name. See, there's a a story in the Chronicles of Narnia finished rereading the first book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It's not first chronologically, but it's first in publishing, and it's the one that you must read first. And in this story, there's a moment where where Aslan, the lion, roars, and the children are struck still. And Lewis, just kind of as an aside. It says, people who've not been in Narnia sometimes think a thing cannot be good and terrible, the correct use of that word, terrible, at the same time. And if the children had ever thought so, that something couldn't be good and terrible at the same time, they were cured of it now. Can Jesus be guide and still be holy and Lord and sovereign over me and not act according to my agenda? See, Lewis went on to believe, to say that he believed in God like he believed in the sun, not because he could see it, but because by its light he could see everything else. Could Jesus be the Christ? When we really examine the evidence, maybe a better question is: how could Jesus? he not be? How could he not be the Christ? So that's my question for you today. Maybe you're wondering, maybe you're questioning, maybe you're hearing, and you just know that there's coming a moment in your life where you've got to say, I'm going to surrender myself to Jesus, and I'm going to trust in Him. I'm going to trust in His work on the cross where He died to take the punishment for my sin. I'm going to trust His resurrection to give me new life. Maybe as a believer in Christ, you'd be reminded today that whatever you're facing, whatever moment you're coming up against, that even in this storm, Jesus is Lord, and I can trust Him. If you want to know him today, I'd love to visit with you about that. If you want to talk about him this week, send me an email and we can talk about what it means to say, I surrender. I want to surrender my will to God's will and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, some today have been wrestling and wondering and questioning. And they're beginning to know that indeed Your Son Jesus is Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. Others are wrestling with whether or not they can give over lordship of their life. They would rather control it than surrender it to You, a God who's perfect in power and wisdom and love. Father, would You help us to humble ourselves that we might surrender to You and become part of Your community of children, your new family that you're gathering from every tribe and tongue and language and nation who you invite to be on mission with you to let the world know of your saving power and love, of this new work you're doing to make all things new. God, have your way with us and help us to trust that indeed Jesus is Lord and a good one He is. In His name we pray. Amen. And you're dismissed.